Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right, good morning. Hey, you guys did pretty good. Knowing it's summer and we got a lot of people going, you sang pretty loud, so thank you. Appreciate it. It makes it makes it feel nice when you hear the voices back uh, while we're... Uh, Singing with you, so yeah, it's good to see you. Happy Father's Day uh, to uh, the the fathers here. Uh, we're glad that you are uh, with us uh, this morning and worshiping the Lord and joining in our series over Romans. So we're going to go ahead uh, and jump right in and uh, read the text. We're in Romans chapter eleven, uh, one through ten this week. It says this: I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Uh, Lord, uh, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it was written. God gave them a stupor, a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let there be a table, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the, the word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you would draw near to us in this. Uh, this is a heavy text with a lot in it, and we ask that you would do a good work in our hearts uh, through it. Draw us towards you. I pray that you place your hope, your grace, and your mercy uh, secure in our heart. And as we go through summer and all the things going on, that we would not lose ourselves. We'd see the beauty of who you are and what you've done. We pray that in your name. Amen. Okay, so we, we mentioned around our 10-year anniversary, like when we were rehoning a uh, vision for uh, the church, one of the things that we brought up was that our goal uh, was that we would become a people with a more faithful biblical worldview. And what this means is we, we don't want to be a church that's tossed to and fro by every wind and wave and things that comes at us in the world. We want to not depend on blogs and podcasts and influences in social media and influencers and, and all of that. We don't want to be influenced uh, over that uh, in order to how to process the world around us. What we wanted to do is instead have the Bible be our foundation, that we go to it for the way that we really see the world. Now, some may consider this to be fundamentalism in our day, that, that this is what crazy people do. Uh, we call it what, what, what maturity and faithful people do. We want to be able to open the word of God to see how to navigate the word. And, and I understand that they're, they're not going to have like the last election in the book of Acts. I, I, I get that. But we want to be able to open the word and see proponents and see principles and th- see things like that, that that help us into how to navigate the things that we're going to go into in the here and now. We want to believe that with an open Bible and the Holy Spirit, the, the helper, uh, that, that we can be able to see the world well. That we don't need influencers and outlets and culture over the word of God. We're not separatists. We just don't want to run towards those things for how do I deal with this? How do I see the word? We want to be people who run to 
uh, the Word. This is a big reason that we went to the book of Romans. It's a heavy book. Uh, it's a beautiful book, but there's some hard-to-understand things inside of it. There's some things that kind of uh, mess with, with the way that you see the world and, and mess with quite a lot inside of, of your heart. But we went to that because it's a perfect place to kind of sharpen your skills. It's a good place to, to learn to wrestle with hard concepts. What we've talked about is we want to learn to think again with the Holy Spirit and an open Bible. It's a great place to sharpen ourselves with the Word to then prepare us to use the Word when we're looking at the world around us. So I bring that ahead of time, not just to remind us of our goal and hope for Romans, but I bring that up ahead of time because I think it's it's helpful knowing that those two things kind of come together in real time in this text. We get a text that's hard to understand, uh, that, that can be a little bit bothersome in some areas of our heart. And we also get a, a text that speaks into our current reality, into the things that we see, into the things that maybe are even giving us some anxiety in the world around us. So this text speaks into our worldview in a helpful way uh, right now. We hope that that is helpful, helps us grow and be mature. We do not want to be tossed to and fro in all things that come uh, towards us. So backing up to remember what has come before so we can process this text, Paul uh, began the three chapters that we're kind of in now that we've called the anatomy of salvation. It's Romans 9, 10, and 11. He opened up 9 speaking of this tragic paradox of Israel's uh, condition. They were uniquely privileged by God in a way that nobody else has ever been, yet they're entrenched in unbelief. They have a beautiful heritage, an amazing promise of blessing, yet they are a mess. They are hard-headed. There are many of them who are unbelieving and they are wayward. In Romans 9, Paul stresses the reality of their unique privilege. This is amazing blessing that we need to understand. To Israel was given the presence of God. That wasn't to everyone. It was to Israel. They were given that. Israel was given the covenants, right, for God to be their God and them to be uh, his people. Israel was given the, the law to show us our need for a savior. Israel was given the, the right and the gift of worship. Israel was given the promises of God. Israel had the patriarchs in their lineage. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were not Gentiles. They were Israelites. And Uh, ultimately, they were given the promise of the Savior would one day come from them. The King of kings and Lord of lords would come from the the, the line of David, which is from Israel. So what we see is a beautiful reality. God chose Israel. God adopted Israel. God made promises to Israel to to bless them and love them. And what did God do in the Old Testament? He showed his love towards them over and over and over in word and deed. He loved them. And yet with all of the promise and all of the privilege and all of the covenants and all of the beauty, uh, Paul shares this reality. Many of them are not saved and never will be. Israel has stumbled over Christ. Christ has become a stumbling block to them. And what does that mean in our language? The idea of needing a savior to stand in between them and God, they, they, they didn't like that. They stumbled over the need for Jesus, and many of them rejected Jesus, and many of them continue to reject God because they reject Jesus. So the, the paradox is, is kind of breathtaking. Look at the promise. Look at the blessing. And look how many of them are unfaithful. What in the world has happened there. And this is Paul's source of lament at the opening of chapter 9. He's, he's just sad. His people, his, his line, the, the people that he grew up with, the, the, the patriarchs, and all of that, many of them have rejected Jesus and were living in this wayward way. And he knew that it was messed up. And it leads to a rhetorical question that Paul asks. He loves doing that 
And he goes back to one here. In light of the, the privilege and the blessing with the reality of all the unbelief, he asks this question. Okay, with all of, it seems like our people almost rejecting God, did God just reject us? Is it over? Did he say, forget you guys? You're, you know, I'm, I'm done with you? Like, did he really reject his people? The rhetorical question is what he places in front of us. Now, the natural progression of this is, is to think, well, yeah, maybe he did do that. Since God, or since Israel rejected God, well, he just rejected them back. He, he met rejection with rejection. We'd think, oh, well, that, that sounds plausible, but yet it wasn't it. Now, there are those who believe that uh, and they struggle to believe the idea of Israel rejecting God because they look at Israel at the time and they're like, well, the people are still going to the temple and they're, they're still observing a lot of the laws to the best of their ability. They're, they're trying to kind of fall in line with the moral part and they're trying to obey. Uh, they, they're, they're devout in many ways. They talked about God. They molded their life around God in many ways. So many ask, well, how is it that God could think Israel rejected him uh, being that they're still kind of doing all of this religious stuff? Why does God consider them wayward and disobedient if they're still obeying significant parts of the law? They're still doing things of worship. They're still coming to the temple. They're still claiming God. Like how in the world would God think he rejected them if they're still doing all of this stuff? And here's one of the big things. It's extremely simple, but yet we have to have it hammered deep into our heart. Why? The answer is this. You can never obey God by disobeying God. It sounds trite, it sounds simplistic, it sounds basic, but they need to hear that and we need to hear it more than ever right now. You will never be obedient by being disobedient. You cannot obey and be faithful by disobedient. So, so Israel was not disobedient because they uh, really shunned the name of God and religion. Why? Because they didn't do that. They still showed up. They kept all of their religious things kind of going in their life. Israel was disobedient because they rejected the Savior of God, Jesus. This was the source of their disobedience. So Yes, they tithed. Yes, they showed up. Yes, they cared about morals in many ways. Yes, they uh, vigorously worked to kind of keep the Sabbath in their life. And they did much, much more than that. Of course, they did all of those things, but they did it while rejecting Jesus. This is the problem. They rejected salvation by grace, that someone would stand in between them. So religion in its good and right form, because we get a little too heavy to where we're, well, religion's bad. No, 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 religion's not bad. Religion gone the wrong way is bad. Religion in its good and right form is an outworking of following Jesus. They're the things that come out of your life because you're following Jesus. Israel was practicing religion as a way to avoid Jesus. I'm going to be religious. I'm going to be devout. I'm going to follow rules to stay away from the Savior. But here's the thing. No amount of ritual observance can make up for rejecting Jesus. This was true for them, and this is true for us. It doesn't matter how much you show up or how much you do or how many good works you devote yourself. If you have rejected Jesus, there's disobedience and there's sin and there's rebellion still in the heart. Jesus himself said this. If you reject me, you reject the Father who sent me, which is primary reason why they wanted to kill him. And Israel had largely rejected Jesus, thereby they rejected God as well. Catch the irony of this. Israel's idea is they sought to bypass Jesus in favor of obedience. I'm, I'm going I'm to go around the stumbling block of Jesus, but I'm going to do it by obeying really, really well, and we're, we're going to be okay. The thought was, well, if I can leave out Jesus and double down on obedience, everything is, is fine. But here again, the idea of I'll bypass Jesus by obedience 
you can't obey by disobeying. This is, this is the thing over and over and over again. You cannot be obedient by while rejecting the Savior. That's not how it works. No matter how uh, really earnest Israel was in their effort, they were still disobedient because they rejected Jesus. They're like, well, I'm going to obey more laws. You don't understand. The laws are meant to point you to Jesus. And they just kept rejecting him over and over and over. If we swing back to the idea of a hope for a biblical worldview for ourselves, in our age, we see almost the exact same phenomenon playing out, but just with a little bit of a different twist on it. We need to identify this. We need to see it. We need to be wise about it. Countless people now profess to follow Jesus and love Jesus in our day. They proclaim to have faith in God while they reject the commands of God. So understand this. Israel rejected Jesus and wanted to obey. Many now want to accept Jesus but intend to disobey but this cannot work. Jesus himself said clearly as well, if you love me, you'll follow my commands. What's the inverse of that? If you don't follow my commands, you don't love me. It doesn't matter how much you wear Jesus' clothes and put, put things on your social media and say that you love Jesus and just Jesus and you. It doesn't matter the words you say. If you don't follow his commands, Jesus says to your heart and mind, if you don't follow what I say, you don't love me. It doesn't matter what you say to other people. There's a connection between relation and obedience, and both must be present. They did not want a relationship to Jesus and a Savior through Jesus, but they wanted to obey. Many today want a Savior and obedience, or they they want a relationship to Jesus, and they don't want to obey. Both things go together. Both things go together. I don't want for a second for us to take that information and become social media warriors or hard-headed people who are screaming loud in, in, in a culture of outrage, but I do want us to be able to, to really recognize the, 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 the current cultural currents that are happening around us and say, man, I've seen something like that before. As you diagnose the things around you, it's not our job to yell at everybody who's not doing the things right, but, but just kind of look at things and go, man, I've seen this in the Bible. I've seen people claim God while disobeying him, and it doesn't work out. It didn't work out for Israel. It doesn't work out in Paul's day, and it doesn't work in my day. I want us to be able to stand firm in the fact that when many people are trying to reinvent the faith and reinvent orthodoxy by changing the, the paradigms, just go, man, it doesn't work. We've tried it so many times. Christianity always involves accepting Jesus and following Jesus. Not one, both. Accepting Jesus and following Jesus. And we could say, well, grace hits your heart before you ever follow because you do not follow in order to be loved. But when you are loved and you're brought into the family of God, both of those things come together. We obey Jesus even when it's hard. Hear me, we obey Jesus even when it calls us to deny ourselves. This is a part of faithful biblical worldview. What is my hope for us? The world right now is screaming at you to deny yourself is harmful to you. That's the message. What are the two things that I think that we have lost the ability to do? Self-denial and suffer well. If you look at our culture, that's it. The world's telling you, well, just if you deny yourself, you will suffer more. Here's the Christian message. If you don't deny yourself, you'll suffer more. We have to understand it. Don't, don't be angry about it to everyone, but do not let the cultural currents flow into your heart where you buy into this reality that, that I need to never deny myself in order to, to live freely. The Bible says the opposite message. The upside-down kingdom says when you deny yourself and turn to the Father, that's where you find life. Man, we, we keep going forever in the Gospels and Jesus' words. Whoever would try and keep their life will lose it. Whoever will give up their life will find it. Over and over and over, this paradigm be careful, be careful. The rhetorical question that Paul presented, has God rejected his people? It's not just wondering, will God 
return rejection for rejection. It's deeper than this. It's a foundational question asking, wait a second, if the people of blessing, if most of them by and large are unfaithful, wait, did God go back on his word? Did he change his mind? Remember all the promises that God made to Israel. Many have wondered, well, did, did God say, hey, you know, forget it, I'm backing out of all those things. Did the God of the universe look at people and, and say, you know what, I'm frustrated, I'm changing my mind, forget them, they don't deserve me, they don't deserve my blessings, they don't deserve anything that I've given them, I, I'm, I'm gonna backtrack, I wish I, I wish I would've never done any of that, I'm out, I'm leaving them. Did he go back on his word? This is the question. And suddenly the question becomes a whole lot more relevant to you and to me because if God would reject his chosen people, if he would abandon them, then we should probably worry. Because if he would abandon them, how can we trust that he'll keep us? We're the Gentiles. We get grafted in, but the people that he adopted was Israel. If he would let them go, what security do we have? How can we have faith that he'll forgive us of our sins if he can go back on his word? How can we believe that he'll look at us as just through the work of Christ? How, how can we rest in knowing that there's a finished work and a new heart given to me? How can we know that we are his? Because if God rejected Israel, if he changed his mind over them, what's stopping him from changing our mind, his mind about us? If he did that, all bets are off. No one is safe. The question he's asking, is God worthy of our trust still? This is the question under the question. Is God worthy of our trust? And again, remember the question is, did God reject Israel? And Paul quickly responds, by no means. No, he's not done that. Yes, it's true that things look bleak. Many have rejected God. Yes, this is also true. Like we, he's not like trying to pad the numbers. No, it, it looks bad. Yes, I, I, I get that. Yes, it seems to be dark days for God's people, but that doesn't mean it's over and it doesn't mean that hope has been lost. And it doesn't mean that God has decided to no longer love or save his people. It's as if Paul is echoing the, the, the psalmist here. The Lord will not reject his people and he will never forsake his inheritance. But Paul doesn't want to just leave us alone by saying, no, he didn't do it. This is what I find really helpful about this text. He says, no, he didn't reject his people. And then he gives us four evidences, four proofs to go, and this is how you know that's actually true. Because there's times when people, they, they give us an answer and you're like, can I have proof of that? He goes, here, I'll give you proof. I'll, I'll give you supporting evidence for this. What are the proofs that God has not rejected his, his people? The first evidence or proof is a personal one that Paul says. He, he says, well, look at me. I'm an Israelite myself. I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's kind of he's throwing down his credentials like, I, I am definitely, definitely Jewish here, okay? And I'm a part of Israel, and God has not rejected me. And if he hasn't rejected me, then we know, therefore, that he has not rejected all of Israel. And there's a beauty in this statement. He's going, hey, look at my own life. The Paul who is a former blasphemer. The, the Paul who persecuted the church, the, the Paul who stood there while, while Stephen was being martyred, the Paul who warred against those following Jesus now stood as one saved, accepted, redeemed, and loved and adopted because of the Savior, Jesus. 
This alone could have been proof. Look at my life and what he's done and, and what he's done in me, but he keeps going. The first evidence is personal. The second evidence is theological. We'll put our theology hat on here. God has re- not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Theological. He's calling us to remember Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30 that say this. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, which it means to become like Jesus, in order that he, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 9, Paul helped us by saying, not all of Israel is true Israel, meaning not all people who are from the the, the line of Israel or racially Israel are God's people. So just because many from Israel have rejected God and the Savior that he sent doesn't mean that all Israel has done so. God has still elected and foreknown some. Before the foundations of time, he did this. Why? To be conformed to the image of Jesus, to become like Jesus. And with that in, in mind, those who God has foreknew, he knew them before the foundation of the world. This news is a, is a deep connection. They will be justified and glorified, and this will never change. Paul is showing us that the foreknowledge of God, to foreknow someone, and that's not foreknowing like I knew what you were going to do. This is I knew you personally uh, before you were ever born. I knew you. The people that he foreknew, he, he chooses to have a relationship with. He involves himself with, and he also commits himself to those people. So the understanding here is God cannot unknow the people that he knows are his. He will never do this. It's not in his character. A good father goes, I know them. I love them. I've committed to them. I made covenants to them, and I've promised to them. They may break their promises. I will never break mine. I will never unknow the people that I know are mine. Yes, things are dark looking. Yes, many have rejected God and, and are lost in unbelief. But hear this, the fact that some will reject God will never undo the fact that God has foreknew and elected others to save. God will not relent in grabbing and keeping and saving those who are his. Here's another way to look at it. God will never turn on those who have placed their faith in Jesus simply because a lot of others have not placed their faith in Jesus. So it not makes sense. God can't be so quickly swayed. He doesn't throw temper tantrums and say, forget all of you. Yes, some have rejected, but the ones that have turned to Jesus and placed their faith in him, he's going, I'll never abandon them. No matter how frustrated you think I am, I will never abandon my people. I've known them before the foundations of time. They are mine and I am theirs and I won't abandon them. Those who he foreknew, he'll never leave. The third evidence is, is scriptural. So he goes, hey, here's a personal evidence from my life. Then he gives a, a kind of theological evidence. And then he goes, hey, l- let me point to an example where you can actually see this play out. And he calls us to remember Elijah in the verses today. In 1 Kings 18 through 19 is an amazing story of the prophet Elijah. Maybe go read it later today. It won't, it won't take you uh, very long. But he, here's kind of what happened. Uh, Elijah challenged the people of Israel uh, to make up their minds back then, saying, hey, how long will you go limping between uh, two different opinions? And, and we, could, we could actually make a sermon of that. If when, when, you have, when you make allegiance to two different gods, you're actually limping back and forth between others because you're never strong in anything. He goes, how long are you going to play this game? How long will you do that? If the Lord is your God, follow him. If Baal, the, 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 the God of that time that people were following, if Baal is your God, then go ahead and follow him. He's going, make a choice. 
Stop doing this game. Make a choice on who you will serve. Israel back then was extremely wayward again. They had mainly uh, adopted the ways of the culture and the practice of Baal worship and all the things that came with that. They were unfaithful. They were disobedient. They were unrepentant. So Elijah tells them, hey, man, stop, stop doing this. Make a choice. What do they do? They go, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. They don't make a choice. So, so he goes, okay, I'm going I'm to have to, we're going to have to do something. So he goes, okay. Quite frustrated, first he makes this statement. In light of nobody responding, keep in mind a prophet of the Old Testament, they're calling people back to God. He's going, okay, make a choice. Come back to God. Stop following Baal. And they're like, yeah, I'm out. I'm not doing that. And, and so he says this. He goes, I, even I, am the only one left, a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So imagine this. You're calling people, come back, come back, and, and crickets. And he laments. Oh my gosh, it's over. I'm the only one left. Like that wicked God has 450 men following. 450 prophets. And I'm the only one for God? He's lamenting it. It's, everyone else has fallen away. It's too far gone. He goes, okay, well, maybe we'll try one thing. Let, let, let's try a test. Let's see if we can overthrow Baal's prophets that day. So he challenged them. He goes, okay, let's do this. Uh, cut up a bull, put it on pieces on an altar on, Mark, on Mount Carmel, and, and I want you to call upon your God to send fire upon this and consume it as an offering to his greatness. You do that. And I'll kind of do the same on the mountain. And I'll call out to Yahweh, the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're going to see who's real in this day. You call out to yours. I'll call out to mine. Like a show off of the gods on top of the mountain. Let's do this. And, and so they agreed. And the prophets of Baal accepted. And they cried out from morning till noon. So these 450 prophets, they're, they're dancing and calling and doing whatever weird stuff that they do. And oh, please and please. And, and, and make this thing come to fire and, and all this. And everything that they're doing, it, it doesn't work. Nothing happened. Like, I imagine just like crickets and, and a, like a gust of wind, and I don't, I don't know. But nothing happened at all. No show of power was performed. So, so look what Elijah does. And this is where, like, you should maybe, like, want to name a kid Elijah or something. This is hilarious. He, he begins to mock them. He goes, cry out louder, boys. Maybe he can't hear you. Like, okay. He doubles down even further. Maybe, maybe he's musing himself. Then the, the original language, it literally says maybe he's relieving himself. Like, like he, you know, maybe he had too much food last night and he, like, he's got to go for a little bit. Like, give him a little bit more time. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Like, oh, okay. Oh, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he got bored with you and he decided to go do something better. And then look at his gusto. He says, or maybe he just did too much stuff the other day and he's tired and need to sleep. Why don't you scream louder? Try louder. Maybe your little God's tired and you need to like, wake him up from his nap-nap and then he'll help you out. So what do they do? They begin screaming louder, cutting themselves, doing all of these things as loud as they can, just praying, please do, do this thing, light this on fire, and nothing happened. So Elijah said, okay, it's our turn. He had the people around soak the altar three times. He's showing this power. He goes, you could do nothing with dry conditions. Pour all this water on. They're like, okay, dude. Go. No, no, do it again. <laughs> You're crazy. Okay, do it again. And they pour so much water on it that there's, there's like a moat around the sacrifice. Things are drenched. There should be no way that this thing lights fire. And he calls upon Yahweh and immediately it catches fire and is ignited. The heat is so intense that it laps up the water. 
you'd think in this moment, like, we've won. But Elijah finds himself after this fleeing to the mountains because King Ahab and Jezebel were trying to kill him for what happened there. You're like, man, a victory. We've taken it back. No, he's run to the mountains, trying not to die. And there, too, he said the same words. This is it. I'm the only one left. Everyone else is gone. Everyone quit. Everyone. I'm the only one left. Among disobedient Israel, I'm the only one left who will follow God. You can almost hear the sound of defeat in his voice. It's over. We've lost. Maybe God's lost. God speaks to Elijah and he says, Elijah, I've kept for myself. Notice those words. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The number seven in scripture, it's a beautiful number. It signifies wholeness and completeness and perfection. And while there were 7,000 men indeed who had not done that, the number would have been even greater knowing that there'd be women and children as well who surely would have kept themselves from the worship of Baal. But what is God showing in this example? Even in the darkest of days, I have not lost and I have not failed. I have kept. I have a significant and perfect amount of people. Again, that number seven is important. A perfect amount of people I have kept. You're like, well, there's not enough. I've kept a perfect amount of people. It's not over. And the preservation of that 7,000 wasn't due to anything Elijah did. How do we know that? He didn't even know they existed. And that 7,000 also wasn't preserved for anything that the 7,000 did. It was all due to God's gracious and sovereign will to preserve them. Again, I, I think we can get a little ruffled by the idea of God's sovereign power when it's meant to comfort us. By the preserving or keeping them, God isn't saying, well, I kept them alive and I didn't let them die. Like I gave them air to breathe. No, he's saying I, I literally gave them the faith to not give up. I kept them in the sense I literally upheld their faith. God will never reject those who he has called to himself. And hear this even when things are hard or difficult and and you just begin to wonder, like, is this going to work out? He not only gives you the faith to believe, but he gives you personally the, the faith to be upheld as well. Even in the face of brutal and dark times, God will not reject his own, and he is so good and powerful. He gives them the faith to believe and also the faith to stand firm in horrifically dark conditions. The fourth evidence is one of application. Paul says in verse 5 these words, so too right? He's calling back to the idea of Elijah. So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. We're just saying, okay, what was true in Elijah's day is true in Paul's day. Just as I preserved a a remnant in Elijah's day, he had a Messiah embracing remnant in Paul's day. And here's what we need to understand. And there's a Messiah embracing remnant in ours as well. Even though the vast majority has rejected Jesus, a remnant had not. One, on, on what basis had that remnant chosen? Uh, remnant, uh, on what basis was that remnant kept? He makes a really big deal to say by grace alone. I kept a remnant in Elijah's day. I kept a remnant in Paul's day. The word for us forward is, and I've kept a remnant in your day by grace and grace alone. I did it by grace in the Old Testament. I did it by grace in the beginning of the New Testament. And I still do it by grace in your day. Thomas Schreiner says, many worry that choosing of some and not all would be unjust. Like that's a tension on all of our hearts. But this idea overlooks the fact that election is gracious. No one deserves to be elected. 
And thus the election of any is a merciful gift of God that cannot be claimed as a democratic right. That's the hardness of our modern heart. We deserve. That's, it, that's a right. And he's going, grace is undeserved mercy. You can never deserve or have as a right undeserved mercy. God graciously chose a remnant and kept them in Elijah's day. He chose a remnant and kept them in Paul's day, and he's done the same in ours as well. Paul reinforces the idea of election by grace in verse 6, saying, it is by grace, or saying, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, it would no longer be grace. Remember, they wanted to obey. They wanted to double down on obedience. He goes, no, it doesn't work that way. You don't double down on obedience. If you double down on obedience, then it's no longer grace that saves you. It's you that save you. Paul's reminding us of the loving kindness of God. Hear this, believer. Like, we have mountaintops and valleys and our faith. Like, man, as much as I wish it was stable... Right, we feel our hearts do this at times. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know where your heart is, but we don't hinge our adoption on our ability to perform or make ourselves lovable or just feel into it at the moment. So you don't have to feel like you continually have to strive to, to be on to keep God's love. He chose his own before time out of sheer grace and sheer kindness. This is a news that should not cause us to be lazy and go, nothing matters but it should give us a confidence to see us through whether we're up or whether we're down. He's given us faith to make it this far. And the beauty is even when you feel like you're limping in a moment and he'll continue to do it later as well. He will never make you earn what he freely gave you in Christ. No matter how frustrating you think you may be, he'll never go, okay, well, your grace is gone. Earn it back now. By grace and grace alone, he saves Verse 7 through 10 show the flip side of what, of what Paul had just said. In those words, um, to those God has foreknew, known, uh, we don't have to work in order to be given grace. But to those who are not foreknown, or, or a lot of these people in Israel, they're going to reject Jesus again in favor of trying to earn the love of Jesus. And this simply saying, that's a snare and a trap that will harden your heart. Do not try and earn what is freely given. It's a mockery of Christ, and it, it, will, it, it will literally destroy you. It's a snare. Don't try and earn what's free. It will hurt you deeply. As we close the text down today, there is inside of it a couple different things that I think might be helpful in the moment. There's an encouragement to you and I to stay faithful. Right? In a again, faithful biblical worldview, looking around without burying our heads into the sound, if, if we look around honestly, it, it may seem like, we the only Christians left? Like, not Redemption's Hill, but just we can feel the number looks probably a little different than it did 10 years ago. You look around, and here's the reality. Many have walked away. Many, not just from our church, churches in the West. Many have walked away. Many have turned away from God. We can almost feel the tides changing in the West as the mass, mass exodus has happened. And what happens when the mass exodus happens? We get the Elijah complex. Am I the only one? Is there only 10 of us? Right? We have some great friends at other churches in the city. Like, are we the only, are we the only ones? We begin to think there's hardly anybody left. Apostasy has won. The 
the church seems like it's failing. Do we lose? Are we on the wrong side of all this? So we've probably known people personally who don't have to look very far to find stories of the mass exodus. Of people who once gladly claimed they followed Jesus, but now they've walked away. And, and hear me caveat, I do not think just because someone would leave our church that they've walked away from the faith. So like, that's not what I mean. But we've all seen people actually walk away from the faith. We've seen people that we care about and love in our church or in other churches that we know that they no longer go to church. They no longer follow or obey King Jesus. They've utterly and completely fell away from the faith that they once walked in. There was a faith that they joyously claimed one day. And now they hate it. And this reality can be overwhelming to our hearts, especially when we care about people. You go, what in the world's happened? Is, is it over? What's happened? And this text is Romans is, is helpful because if you feel the weight of that reality, which I think honestly most of us do, it feels heavy. You begin to wonder, is it too far gone? If you begin to doubt whether the church can live much longer in a culture that is this lost and in light of how many have left ours and others, Paul just gives us encouragement. Friends, don't worry. God will hold on to his own. Days can look dark. Remember Elijah, am I the only one as he's fleeing into the mountains by himself, literally trying not to die? Oh my gosh, am I the only one? Like it, it feels dark. But here's the thing that we need to remember. Jesus wins and God won't abandon his people. So in the light of when things look hard or when things are difficult, take heart, stay faithful, and know that he's going to be faithful to you forever. The, we, we want to handle that rightly. We want to mourn appropriately. I think the Spirit would just tell us, don't mourn inappropriately, though. Jesus is still good, just as good as he was before. The other thing that we want to walk away with in reality of this. Notice how he pairs together, it's not over, and it's only by grace. Paul and Romans have been fighting distress to us. Just one major truth on repeat. He does it in a lot of ways, and they're beautiful. But here's the thing. He just wants to tell you one thing. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You look at his words, that's what he's telling you over and over and, and over. But here's the problem and why he's saying it so many times. To hear you were saved by grace, something you did not deserve, through faith, not by what you do, by Jesus, not in you. It's a beautiful message, but the default wiring of our hearts is to go towards something else. We want to believe you earn something. We want to believe you do something. We want to believe that we're the ones that merit the things. So people will do this. Since it's not the natural default of the heart, again, he's over and over and over, grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. People will hear that, but they're going to try to get rid of their guilt and deal with their conscience in some way. Because we all have sin and we all have guilt and we all have a conscience that, that, that needs to be dealt with at times. So what will people do if they don't believe that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone? They're going to try and add therapy. 
or exercise or diets or medications or vacations or hobbies to kind of fill in the gap. None of those things are wrong. Just they can never go in the place of saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And others, maybe they won't try and put other things in the gap. What they'll do is they'll approach a works-based religion to try and earn their peace of mind just like the people in Israel did. Okay, well, I'm just going to try and do more to deal with the shame that maybe feels left over. And others, maybe they won't put in therapy and things like that, and maybe they won't try and double down on works-based religion. Others will just give up and turn to self-medication. Friends, people in our church and the church have done this. But here's what you need to understand. You can't drink your guilt away. And you can't burn off your guilt like exercise. And you can't not make your guilt shrink like a belt line with a a well-practiced diet. You cannot work it off with a job or achievements, and you cannot eliminate it through degrees or more good deeds or no matter what. You You cannot fix your shame through a perfect life and a perfect family and perfect works. It doesn't work. We are saved by undiluted grace, by God's unmerited favor to those who repent and place their faith in the Messiah, in Christ, and in Christ alone we are made clean. As the entire section of Romans 9 through 11 has aimed to to show us the the love of God and the acceptance of Jesus' work for you fully is the only thing that can cause you to stop trying to earn what was freely given to you. And and this is why you'll hear us use these words quite often intentionally. We throw the full weight of our hope into King Jesus. Not 70% or 80 or 90. I I put the full weight of my hope into you so that I stop trying to earn by 10% or whatever else. I stop trying to earn what was freely given to me. The hope today is this, that pure, uncut grace would wash over you and me. Just that we'd hear these words enough. These are not new. These are not brilliant. These are not well-crafted. Jesus is enough. That's what he's telling you here. God is faithful, and if you are in Christ, you are clean. He's enough. The call for us then is to worship in light of the God who has done all of that for his children. What amazing love he gives. And today we get to just enjoy it. Yes, days can be dark. Yes, things can be hard. Yes, the currents of culture can shift really quickly and kind of disorient us. Yeah, but God is faithful. Jesus wins. And he'll never let go of his people. If you haven't accepted that love by putting your faith in Jesus, man, I just invite you to. Jesus is the way to the Father. He's the stumbling block to some, but he's the only way to the Father. In him is the peace that your soul has been looking for, is the redemption that your heart needs. It is in Christ and Christ alone. If you've kind of waffled around that, my hope for you is you just hear it clearly. You don't have to earn what is freely given. You place your faith in the perfect one. You do not have to be perfect to be brought into the family of God. Church, if you are in that, may your heart be encouraged by it. And if you stood outside of that, my plea for you is, why wait? Put your faith in Christ. Garrett, you and John can come back up. We're gonna take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, for I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that, he, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we have the communion cups in the entryway. If you haven't grabbed one, uh, feel free to do so and, and take it any point in worship. We'd, you don't have to be a member. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus. Here's the reality. Communion does something. Right? It is not salvific, but you're remembering it is his broken body and his shed blood, and that alone saves me. Again, the message of grace alone, it is what he has done, and you're reminding your heart of the beauty of what a Savior has done for you. But my hope is that you would be encouraged in that. My hope as well is if, if defeat feels close to the door, if, if it, the reality of just how many people have walked away, whether it be uh, from, from family or friends or people you know that you wouldn't be discouraged, it's easy to look and go, oh my gosh, is it over? It's not over. King Jesus is good. God has his people. It's a call to be faithful, even when things look a little bit crazy. I hope that your heart would be encouraged in that. I pray that the grace and mercy of Jesus would securely just hold you as you take in communion as you worship with us today.